This is Gurus, the story of acting. I'm Jeff Zinn. That's Michael Cerverus at the age of 25, playing the role of Ian Ware, the hot new kid from Britain, in season six of the TV series Fame. Sometimes when we look back at the early films and TV shows of people who have gone on to successful careers, we might see glimpses of the mature talent to come. In this case, though, it's already all there. The voice, the sense of ease, the virtuosic shape-shifting. The show's producers must have known they had in young Michael Cerverus, someone who could do almost anything. Now he's a preening, t-shirt-ripping punk rocker. Now he's a smooth crooner, a noirish private eye, a sensitive lover. Fast forward 30 years, and Cerverus is a seasoned pro with 10 Broadway credits, four Tony nominations, and two wins, one for featured actor in Sondheim's Assassins, and one for leading actor in Fun Home. On TV, he's had major recurring roles in Fringe, Treme, The Good Wife, and currently, The Gilded Age. None of it is surprising, really, when we see all of that early promise in the young star of fame in 1986. But how did he get there? In the following interview, I asked Michael Cerverus to talk about his training pathway. So listen, Michael, I'm very interested to hear about your training background. And at first glance, I noticed that you had gone to Yale, right? And then at second glance, I noticed that it w- you went to Yale undergrad, which I understand the distinction. And yet you strike me as, um, in your career especially, as the kind of actor that you would guess had come out of the conservatory, but you didn't. Right. So how did, how did you get there? What was, what was your training pathway that brought you into that space where you're able to do all those kinds of things? Well, I, uh, I began on the stage at a really young age, um, you know, in an amateur way, um, I grew up around the arts because my father and mother had both gone to Juilliard. My father's a classical pianist and my mom was a modern dance student. So despite the fact that I was growing up in a relatively small town in West Virginia, um, my parents made sure that all three of us kids were exposed to the arts consistently from a young age. And and so, it, you know, it wasn't too long before we got kind of roped into the of family business, as it were. For example, my first time on stage was as uh, one of the little prince's friends in the Caucasian Chop Circle in a production that was being done at the university where my dad was teaching. And it was, you know, it was a non-speaking part, and I mostly just hung out with the other little kids and ran around and played backstage and then did our little bit on stage. At one point, for some reason, the kid playing the little prince left the production, so they asked me if I would want to take over but it meant learning lines and being on stage more and not getting to hang out and play backstage. And so I said, <laughs> you know, thanks, but no thanks, <laughs> which was, 
indicative, I think, of a you know my general ambivalence about about uh, you know the actor's life in general, and uh, and also possibly the last time that I turned down a larger <laughs> job. So um, sounded like the uh, a, a star is born kind of uh, storyline. Right. Right. Almost. Um, And so I did community theater things as a kid um, and summer stock stuff. My dad would sometimes be musical director for a summer theater company in Prestonsburg, Kentucky, Jenny Wiley Summer Theater. You know, I was around theater. I was around acting. It was, you know, a thing I did. You know, I also did Little League and I did Midget League basketball and I had a you know, a rock band in junior high school. And so I had a bunch of different interests and I had a healthy respect for the rigors of a a performing career that I think I inherited from my parents who both chose not to have professional performing careers and instead chose to have a family and go into academia. So I had a real, you know, respect for what it took to really have a life in the arts my last two years of high school, I went to Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire. And my teacher there was a guy named B. Rodney Marriott, who was also the literary manager of the Circle Rep Theater in New York. And my my time with him was really kind of formative in my experience. Um, I did a lot of theater while I was in those two years at Exeter. You know, it was at a higher level and a little more serious and also you know we did Strindberg in high school because you know (laughs) he was Exeter so when it came time to look at colleges he really encouraged me to look at Yale Um, that was where he had gone and he said you know they above all he felt like he learned how to learn there Mm. and I I applied to seven different places some of them like NYU that would have been a conservatory program and Carnegie Mellon and a few others. And then also Brown and Yale and some other places that were strong academic places that also had strong theater programs. And, you know, my, my guidance counselor was like, yeah, okay, you can apply to Yale and Brown, but I think we should really focus on Boston college. Cause I think that would be great. Um, <laughs> and, and why? <laughs> well, because Boston college has a good theater program or, oh. you know, did at that time. But also the bar for admissions was not as high as Brown and Yale. And I think he was subtly telling me that, you know, my my ranking in, in mm-hmm. my class at Exeter didn't necessarily make me a, a big candidate for uh, Yale and, Har- and uh, Brown in his opinion. But, um, you know, it was it was like another $50 to apply to sure. Yale and do a essay. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do it anyway. And then in the end, I was delighted to be able to go back into his office, having been accepted to all seven of the schools that I applied to. Wow. Um, and, and now I had the, you know, the conundrum of where to go. Um, I really thought I was going to go to Brown. I, when I did my college visits, you know, I went to Yale and it was a rainy day in New Haven and, you know, everything looked so austere and imposing and uh, impressive, but not exactly inviting. And then the next day I went to Brown and it happened to be a beautiful day. And, you know, everything was there, was very inviting. And I, 
I happened to meet the head of the theater department and talk to him for some time. And so I sort of thought when I got back, well, if I get in to every place, Brown's where I'm going to want to go. Hmm. And then I did get into every place and and had to really think about it. And um, I remember getting the brochures from Brown and Yale and uh, Brown's was this very Madison Avenue, very kind of cool and made the place look great. And Yale's was like a blue folder with black and white photos and not that many. But my overall impression was, well, Yale clearly seems to think that they don't need to sell their school. It's sort of like, you know, we're Yale. If you want to come here, you're welcome to. If you don't want to, we'll be fine without you. Yeah. And and Brown, I felt I was getting a real sort of sales pitch, which wasn't unwarranted, but I just felt like, well, I wonder why they feel the need to sell me on this idea. And I think that was kind of it. I remember having a phone call with my sister and and saying, you know, I have to send an acceptance thing to one of these places tomorrow. And she said, well, you're going to Yale, right? And I said, said, well, yeah, I guess I am. And it was kind of in that moment that the decision was made. So then I went to Yale, and the program was distinctly not a pre-professional program. There was no voice and speech. There was no movement. There was no technical theater training there. Bart Toys, who ran the program at that time, also, at that time anyway, was not its own uh, major. It was a special, theater studies was a divisional major in the humanities department, but it wasn't its own department. So my degree is uh, BA in theater studies at Yale, um, or in the humanities, sorry, with an emphasis in theater studies. And I think that sort of explains where Yale thought theater fit in, that it wasn't really a sufficiently academic <laughs> discipline mm. to to major in, in itself. Um, but it actually really suited me because the first year was open to anybody who wanted to take it. The class was like a hundred some people and it was a lecture class and it was taught by Teusch. Um It was very academic and very, it was about learning to break down a script and, and read a performance in the same mm. way that you read a script. Um, Um, And there was, I think the second semester, there was a a separate class that I got into where we actually, we wrote our own adaptations of one of the stories in Dubliners. We got to choose the story and and kind of write and direct and stage adaptation of one of the stories. And I think part of the purpose of this very academic, I mean, we read Roland Barthes uh, in that class and... Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of the purpose was specifically to take any kids who had been the stars of their high school theater programs and kind of weed out the people who were, you know, in it because it was, you know, fun or they liked being on stage and to really kind of try to narrow it down to the more serious people. And so the second year then, was taught by Nico Sakharopoulos, who ran the Williamstown mm, Theater Festival sure. at that time. And that class, you had to audition to get in, and there were only 30-some people in that class. So, you know, that that kind of narrowed it down a lot. And his class was could not have been more different from the previous year. It was all, he'd 
he would say, you know, I don't care what you're thinking. I want to see what you're doing. <laughs> and so we would do a lot of exercises where it was really just sort of trying to get into your body and get in touch with your, you know, your emotions, but not in an intellectual way, in a more physical right. way. Then the third year was taught by Austin Pendleton and a woman, Polina Klimovskaya, who was from the Moscow Art Theater. And it was all very sense memory and Uta Hagen and Agnes sort of work. Okay. okay. And then the fourth year was um, pretty much independent study, and you just picked a project and worked on it and brought scenes in and stuff. And I, because I wanted to, I didn't think I was ever going to be in musical theater. I took vocal performance classes from a music teacher who taught mostly in the music school, taught the grad students voice, but he taught, took on a few undergrad students. And he was a German leader specialist. And he said, well, I know you're not going to go into opera, but I'm going to train you like you were. And then you'll have those tools and you can do what you like with them. Mm -hmm. And, I really was doing it because I wanted to do Shakespeare. And I thought, well, if I develop my voice, that'll be good for Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. um, and I took some movement classes through the gym, through the dance program at the gym. So I kind of created my own sort of proto-grad school sort of thing. And then by the mm -hmm. end of the four years, I, it was ideal for me because I came out feeling like I had this toolbox and I had been taught three or four very distinct but very different ways of approaching what was good acting. And now I had a set of tools to apply, you know, in various situations. And as I got out into the professional world, I found it really valuable. And I found myself a lot more flexible than my friends who had gone to Juilliard say, and who had learned like the way to do everything. Mm. And if they were working on a traditional classical piece, they were great and they were light years more confident than I was. But if it was anything kind of outside of what they'd been taught, they really struggled to figure out how to find a way into it. And I felt like I didn't have that problem. I just had a bunch of different tools. And because the kind of work I've done has been so varied, that training was, in hindsight, really ideal for me. And I thought about grad school, but most of the people I knew I'd watched two entire classes go through three years at the grad school, um, and I was friends with some of them. And I thought if I went anywhere, I wanted to go to Yale. And they all said, you know, I think you should go to New York and see where you feel like you are when you're there. And if you feel like you need to learn more, right. then, then apply and then come back to grad school, and, you know, that'll – then you'll know why you're here other than rather than just trying to avoid New York. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, that made some sense to me. So I got here and sort of turned my first years in New York into my own grad school. And I would get a small role in a Shakespeare play where I didn't really, I didn't have enough lines to merit having a text session, but mm -hmm. I would go and just sit in the back of the, the rehearsal room and listen to the characters who had more lines and just sort of, you know, audit those, those rehearsals. And likewise mm. with, um, D.H. Barry was doing the fights for this one, uh, 
chicks were playing. I was in them. And I just went, I wasn't in the fight, but I went and just watched and right. sort of learned by watching. And same thing on soap operas. We didn't have any camera training at Yale, but but I ate hamburgers in the background of every soap opera in New York. And <laughs> and I watched how the other, you know, the real actors uh, hit their marks and figured out what camera was on them and stuff. And hmm. so it was just a sponge. And I came out of that time with probably as you know, nearly as much knowledge as I would have had had I gone to grad school and a lot less extra college debt and, uh, and you know, and, and some professional credits by the time I finished it all. That's great. That kind of do-it-yourself conservatory, uh, you know, amalgamation is really cool. I spoke to another uh, a friend of mine, David Patrick Kelly, um, oh, I yeah, a wonderful guy and who who described a similar not the same but a similar pathway in terms of seeking out different teachers and different um techniques and kind of putting it together in a in a kind of ad hoc way which was um has certainly served him and obviously this has has served you. And the Shakespeare um that you you described sitting in the back um where where that was in New York where was that, was that? in New York that was at the Arc Theater um in New York it was a uh off Broadway company down on Spring Street uh-huh. um, Jim Simpson was directed one of the things um okay yeah Rebecca Guy um uh oh, Laura um what's her name I did I did um, Life is a Dream and Macbeth and Rocco's sister was in one. And Laura, I can't remember her name, but she was on ER. I think she was on ER. She played a doctor uh-huh. um, who had like some, she had a cane. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, there are a bunch of actors who, you know, uh, went on to do a lot of stuff and they were, you know, but we were all sort of young and, fresh into New York. It was yeah, great. And soaking it up. And soaking it up. The piece of that you described to me at at Yale, um, was there much crossover between, you know, where you were in Yale and, and the drama school at Yale or were they, you know, never the twain shall meet? They they were essentially autonomous. There we had some of the graduate um Directing students directed sometimes at the Dramat. Um, mm-hmm. I worked with a guy named Peter Wallace, who uh, was a grad student in directing, and he directed me in uh, Romeo and Juliet. Um, and then later, you know, came to New York and was working at Repertorio uh, uh, Español, I think, if I remember right. What I was starting to ask you about in in your Yale years, you talked about sort of getting at least a taste of the Stanislavski stuff, uh, sense memory, you know, effective memory, uh, Udahag, all of that. What of that sticks with you, if any? I mean, what and or is helpful to you, might I ask? I think various things of it were useful at various times and, and continue to be useful at various times in different ways. The one thing that kind of consistently has been useful to me is the the circles of concentration mm. idea, um, you know, that you have one 
circle that includes that's essentially yourself, and then a larger circle that includes your scene partner, and then a larger circle that includes you know the rest of the stage, and another circle that includes the whole house and the audience and stuff. And and I found that really really valuable, and still find it very valuable. And I actually find it especially valuable going back and forth between stage and film and television. Right. Um, you know, when people ask, like, what's the difference between working on film and TV? And, and that's kind of the simplest way to explain what, in a lot of ways, I don't think it's any different. You know, the job is still sure. the same. But, um, but there is a difference in the, uh, you know, the space that you're trying to get your performance to travel. Um, mm. And the the easiest way to kind of explain that and to think of it myself is, is that the, I use the much closer uh, circles of concentration when I'm working for a camera than I do um, when I'm working on stage. But even sure. when on stage, you know, there's other kind of interior things have to be active and alive too. So there's that. Um, I do remember some of the insistence on working from the inside out. Some of that was very useful, but also I like to work with Nikos and some of the other work that I did that was more sort of outside in. There absolutely have been plenty of times when finding the right posture for the character or finding you know their mm. gait or finding their physicality has been the key to finding the character for me. And that isn't such a Stanislavskian thing, but um, it hasn't felt to me like it had to be either or. Maybe that's because I had this kind of ad hoc kind of uh, instruction and wasn't Mm. drilled into believing that there's only one way to do it. I do remember being in class one day and, uh, well, (laughs) I have two, two memories that, Really to this one is um, watching some people do a scene in class, and uh, this one actress in particular was just clearly, clearly feeling this scene, and it was very dramatic and very intense for her, but not particularly for those of us watching. It was more <laughs> like just sort of watching somebody go through something. Right, and and I remember our teacher Bartosz saying, you know, it's it's really not important what you're feeling. What's important is what we're feeling. And then I remember Nikos <laughs> getting up at the end of somebody had done a scene from Streetcar and of course like, you know, the actress was in a slip and Stanley, you know, the actor was stripped to the waist and by the end of the scene there was water all over the place and broken glass and, you know, all this stuff. And I remember Nikos getting up and his only comment was, I don't know why people who can't act always do such long scenes. (laughs) (laughs) A devastating thing and, you know, the kind of thing that would, you know, get HR called on you now. But both of them, I think, were sort of trying to uh, warn us of the dangers of too much reliance on just how things felt to you to do them. 
and that you know it's feeling meaningful because you're really feeling something is is only a step along the way to you know it's just a part of the tool that you need to find the character for a performance you know you seem to have good command of both a very uh, truthful you know close circle of attention some of your work in the good wife you know film work um and then there's hedwig <laughs> <laughs> physical and, and external, and yet, I mean, the, the the intensity of what's going on in the inside is also there. I mean, do you have a, do you, do you love doing, I, I would guess that the Hedwig thing was maybe one of the most fun things that you ever did. Yeah, it absolutely was. And that's a great example of something that, you know, I worked a lot on the inner life of it, but I didn't really start to find the, you know, the real heart of the character until <clears throat> I had done a lot of work on the outside of it. And it really, it really all came together after many weeks of rehearsal. The first day I was in the whole getup and the whole, right. you know, the, the mask of the, the makeup and the wig and the dress and everything else and saw myself in the mirror. And it was a real, <laughs> It was a really striking thing, and uh, and that I think was the beginning of the the final phase of really finding the character. And it was very much because of and I had done a little bit of mask work at some point in in my training, um, but it really is remarkable. And what what happened for me in that I think. And which is probably a lot of what drag is about for for people who are really you know invested and proficient in it. Um, it's a it's a kind of armor. That mask is a kind of protective shield that allows you, if you want to be, to be so much more vulnerable than normal because you have this defense of this. Uh, construction around you and so mm. I, I was really happy to have friends and people I was close to come to see me in the show and say you know usually when you know when you see somebody work especially somebody you know you see their tells and you see their you know their uh, habits and their go-to things and my friends said you know I came I could not find you <laughs> in it at all and I was, you know, felt really that was a great compliment. And yet at the same sure. time, I had never felt more sincerely myself mm-hmm. and more honest and more unguarded in a performance than I had in that. And I think it was mm-hmm. because of the 
of the exterior of it all. So mm, um, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So it yeah. gives you permission to um, to and protection, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, that that that's that's really cool. Yeah. Um, I and, you know yeah I do I do love that, but I also really enjoy the the technical demands of trying to find some version of that freedom and that mm-hmm. complexity in the more uh, structured things of uh, working in front of the camera. Where does the music? fit in for you, Michael? Um, I mean, it's obviously a big part of your work and, and your life. Um, cause I know you're, you're in a, you're in a group now, um, loose cattle. That was so interesting what you were saying about the training that you got at Yale in voice and how it was multi, it, it was applicable to a whole bunch of different things, but, um, can you just talk a little bit about your relationship to the music and singing? Sure. Um, I grew up initially, I think my first exposure to singing was in choirs and was in, you know, in school, junior high choirs and uh, church choirs and that kind of thing. Um, I I studied an instrument because my father was insistent that all three of us kids pick the instrument of our choice and, and study it for a year. And then if we didn't want to continue past that, that was up to us, but he felt like he owed it to his profession to at least try to pass, you know, music on to his kids. So I think we all started it with piano, but it's hard to learn something from your father at home. So <laughs> I didn't, I didn't last too long with that. I then in fourth grade took uh violin and uh, something about the way I played violin made them say I ought to consider the cello, which, <laughs> and I wish now that I had followed either of those instruments because I love both of them. Um, mm. But it was fourth grade and the cool thing was to play guitar. So I switched to guitar and finished out my year and then kind of put it away. And sometime later, a couple of years later, picked it up again, kind of retaught myself by myself. And then started just teaching myself listening to the radio and listening to records and figuring things out on my own in my room. So I did learn a couple of technical things early on, but I'm mostly self-taught as a guitar player. And as a singer, you know, I did, I played in choirs. And then once I started being able to play guitar, I could accompany myself. So I would do that. And I remember like playing guitar and singing for folk mass and, uh, you know, when I was growing up and being an altar boy and, all of that and but it was always kind of a thing that I did for fun but I didn't think of myself as a musician because I had in my father the example of what I thought right. you had to be in order to deserve to call yourself a musician that's and a real was, musician <laughs> yeah and it was years of training and, and you know being able to sight read and knowing theory and everything else and I didn't I hadn't done any of that I had developed my ear really well um, but I couldn't read and still can't. I mean, I can kind of read relatively, but if you just put music in front of me, I'm somewhat lost, uh, right. certainly on anything but uh, singing. Uh, so I never, I did music for fun, but never for, never thought of it as a real career possibility. And so when I came out of Yale, 
I had done, like I'd done a couple of recitals because my teacher insisted that I do recitals and it was great. I did Samuel Barber music and Bernstein and, um, and some German leader and some Italian art songs and stuff. And, and it was really great training. And I really did learn a great deal about how to use the mechanics of using my voice. And then when I came to New York, I, studied for a little while with a guy named Calvin Remsburg, who I think at that time was in Phantom of the Opera, and um, just to put a book together to have for the rare occasions when I would go in on musical auditions, but I didn't do it very often and didn't get cast in any of them, So, but, which was fine because I wasn't really, didn't think I was interested in doing musicals. So it wasn't really until Tommy that hmm. was the first time that, um, and I had, I had gotten a job uh, in Fame, the TV series Fame. I auditioned in New York and was cast from here and went to L.A. And I got that part largely because I think I came in and accompanied myself to the audition. The, ki- the character was a British guitar student, and they wanted you to come in and sing a rock song. And I didn't want to trust some random accompanist on piano to accompany me for a rock song. So I thought, I'll just bring my guitar, I'll play a David Bowie song and do that. And that was kind of what got me that gig. And so when the audition for Tommy came up, I was actually doing production of Richard II at the time at the Mark Taper Forum. And I remember going on a lunch break, going over into the Valley and auditioning for Tommy. And once again, they wanted you to come in with a rock song and I wasn't going to trust it to some Broadway show tune piano player. So I brought my guitar and played uh, the same Bowie song again, actually. (laughs) And uh, and it worked again. And it was funny because when I had gone out to L.A. to do Fame, I've always loved going out to see live music. And I'm always the one person running from the curtain at my show to try to catch the last few songs of some indie band downtown that, you know. And when I when I was first doing this, like now every other guy on Broadway has a band and plays guitar. But back in those <laughs> days, like, you know, I was the only one I knew who was even interested in rock and right. roll. And, um, and when I was in LA, you know, you are what you seem to be in LA in a way that you're not in New York maybe. And so I was going out to these clubs and seeing these bands and, Fame was on TV then at like five o'clock on Saturdays, um, two in the afternoon on Sundays, the rebroadcast of the week before. And so all the club kids would watch it either when they were getting ready to go out in, on Saturday night or when they were finally waking up on Sunday morning. And so I would go see these shows and people recognized me from the show and on the show I was this English rock car player. <laughs> so that was kind of my entree into being able to hang out with these musicians. And over time, I kind of realized, well, I mean, I'm not the greatest guitar player in the world by any stretch of the imagination, but I am I can play guitar at least as good as that guy. And that guy has like a three record deal. So <laughs> maybe I should stop stopping myself from playing music. Um, just because I don't consider myself really a musician. And 
when I started to do that, the thing that really changed, I mean, it was interesting because I was using my voice in a, not a way that was trained for at all. Um, but for example, with Tommy, I couldn't really sing the whole score when I got the job. I, mean, I sang it enough to get, you know, one or two songs to, in an audition to get the job, but then to do it regularly and to rehearse it and do eight shows a week, I added five notes to the top of my range often through the exercise of learning that show, but I did it without damaging myself because I had been trained well in the mechanics of Mm. vocal production. And then the rest was just kind of stylistic interpretation and, and an interest in the genre of music that I was interested in. So when I started having music as a creative outlet that I had control over, it made the whole business of being an actor so much more bearable for me because I didn't have to wait for somebody to give me an opportunity by hiring me to be creative. If I wasn't working, I could just sit at home and write songs and record them on my, you know, little four track cassette thing at home and, and put bands together and try to do shows and stuff. And, and it, I think it took a lot of the edge off every audition and being so life or death. If I don't get hired, I'll just go back and, you know, write some more music till the next chance I get to mm-hmm. act. And, and it really improved my, my life in general. And then I started eventually um, I had some opportunities to do it at a higher level. Like when I played guitar for Bob Mould on his tour around the U S and UK. And, um, and that was such a thrill for me. Just, just having somebody else carry my amps and set them up on stage was really, <laughs> it's really exciting to me. Um, there's still most of the time they're parallel paths. They don't sync up too often, except in the case of like Sweeney Todd, where I got to play guitar in the show Hedwig, I didn't play guitar in it, but the experience of doing Hedwig was closer to being in a band and playing a show in a club than right. uh, than anything else. And so I felt very at home as a result. And you know, I think in some ways, because the styles of music that I've played on my own, whether they were you know the more punk rock stuff with Bob or the more Americana and country and folk stuff that I do now with Bruce Cattle, I think it confuses people that know me from the Broadway world or from <laughs> acting more than anything else. And uh-huh. so it doesn't really, I think people think that, Oh, he's got Tony awards and he, you know, he does all this stuff on TV. He must sell out every time he plays a show and the reverse is true. I I'm mostly begging the same group of friends to come see me every time <laughs> I play a show like every other band try to right. you know, just try to go out there and do it. Do you find that singing, the act of singing is a pure emotional release? I mean, that that in a way it's it's easier to kind of let it out. Does, does that factor in at all for you? It It does, definitely. And I think probably because I haven't looked to music to provide an income, I've always just it's been more pure enjoyment than acting, mm. acting also partly yeah. because of the characters I tend to end up playing. Acting is much more difficult and painful 
at times just essentially disemboweling myself nightly for you know, <laughs> the amusement of other people. Right, um, right. And music is just kind of freeing and fun singing. But it is interesting that with my own songs, I struggle to feel that kind of freedom because I think I'm much more self-conscious and much mm. more, I don't have a character to hide behind or anything. And because when I sing David Bowie's song, for example, I can throw myself into it completely and unreservedly and it's very freeing and very fun and and I love it um then when I'm trying to put across my own songs I don't have that sort of abandon Got it. easily and I I sometimes will try to kind of fool myself into thinking that my own songs are songs that somebody else wrote that I'm just covering the <laughs> way to kind of you know get myself out of my own way and probably only ever minimally able to do that. But, but when I do, it, it does make it a bit easier. Your comment about torturing yourself, letting your guts out on stage, that, that brings me to fun home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's a fine example of it. The, the song that you sing, The Edges of the World, is yeah. um, that must cost you. I'm scared. I had a life I thought I understood. I took it and I squeezed out every bit of life I could. But the edges of the world that held me up have gone away. And I'm falling into nothingness or flying into something so sublime. And I'm a man, I don't know who am I now or do I go? I can't go back, I can't find my way through. I might still break a heart or two. When the sunlight hits the parlor wall At certain times of day I see how fine this house could be I see it so damn clear Oh my God, why am I standing here? Yeah. It absolutely did, and I, it was never easy to, to get through, and, and mm. more than a few times I afterwards would just sort of have a little breakdown in the, in the wings or you know, mm. backstage while the, while the girls were kind of putting the audience back together again. Right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I was just having to you know, just put myself back together again. It absolutely cost me every night. And the thing was, I, I so treasured that experience. I would have done the show for much longer if it had continued. And I think in some ways it's probably a very healthy blessing that it ended when it did because um, I don't think it was the healthiest thing to do for a long, long time. Uh, I had done it for quite a while, but... Um, mm -hmm. But it's also tremendously satisfying. It felt like that show in particular, probably in a way that I don't imagine anything else will ever completely match, mm -hmm. felt like the culmination of everything that I had trained for and everything I had fired to do 
as an actor and do with my work in terms of uh, providing something meaningful to the world. Cool. Now we come to the story of that other great strand of actor training, the one that ran parallel to the journey that began with Stanislavski, the saga of Jacques Copeau, his lover and collaborator, Suzanne Bing, and Copeau's nephew, Michel Saint-Denis. Around the same time that the first studio was being formed within the MAT, in Paris, Capot was launching his new company, Le Vieux Colombier. That's told in episodes 18 and 19, next on Gurus. Gurus, the story of acting, was written by me, Jeff Zinn, and is produced by Dwight Street Book Club. Rollin Jones, Adam O'Byrne, Tony Manna, and Nicholas Hassong with help from Mary Seidel. Music, editing, and mixing are by Jay Hagenbuckle. Very special thanks to Brendan Hughes. For a complete list of sources, including books, articles, and other podcasts, and a treasure trove of images, visit our website, storyofacting.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.